I'd like to give you a deep and profound reason why I have taken an interest in this subject, but I can't. Uh, I realised after one year of my first year of marriage that my wife was much better at fierce conversation than I was, and that I decided at that time to address the situation for reasons that you would all understand, I'm sure. Uh, the knot in the stomach, uh, as you approach a, a conversation, just to, to think about it, we, we all have it. It's, it's built into our, our DNA, it's only natural. But I figured what's worse, to uh, go on with the situation, to never address it, address it let it fester uh, and, and drive a wedge between somebody, or actually face the moment as nervous as, as it can be and difficult as it can be, but have a great, the possibility of a great, great outcome. Have you had that conversation? Have you ever had such a great conversation that a life is changed, that maybe a career kick-started because of it? Wounds healed or friendships, a bond of friendship strengthened? It's a great gift to be able to have this conversation and great gift to be able to receive it. It's a great act of kindness, isn't it? And sometimes we need the courage to, to go face it. And I know some of you today have been hurt by conversations. I certainly have. So I'm going to talk to you about three principles on why we should have that conversation. I'm going to look at five don'ts, how not to have that conversation, and one do. And I'm going to take you through a, a, a quick steps in a best practices. If you're going to prepare for a conversation, what to do. So principle one, the power of egg on your face. So we're going to do a little survey. Next week, you're at church, you're standing in that foyer, you're about to walk in, and you look up and in bolts through the door, a young man, a complete stranger, you have no idea who this person is and he's got a big bushy beard. And at that stage, you know on the way to church, he has stopped off for an, for an egg and bacon sandwich and a cup of coffee. And there's a great place at Rye, just found out you can get it for $10. So hopefully he's gone there. And why you know he's had the egg and bacon sandwich? Because he's wearing part of that egg on his beard. So we're going to do a little survey here. Put your hand up if you would have the impulse or courage to walk up to that person and tell him about the egg on your beard. How many would do that? Truthful answer. Okay, so we've got about 25%. Good for you. How about we change the circumstances here? That person is no longer a stranger, they're a friend. Would you then, would that change your mind? Put your hands up. You're still in it? A few more, what do we got, 40, 50%? Great. So one last change. What if that person was you that walked through that door with egg on your face? And you came in and you, you went, came into church and you sat through the service here and you walked out into that foyer and you met people, friends, shared coffee, biscuits. And before you left, you walk into the bathroom and you look into the mirror and you see the egg on your face. So the first reaction, of course, is embarrassment. Obviously. But the second thing is, 
he questioned, why didn't anyone say anything to me? And there's a sense of anger there, isn't it? That frustration. What does this say about this church, this organisation? No one would say something to me about my egg on the face. And so if the person next to you has a problem with you, who do you want them to go to? Our friends talk about it, cause gossip, but of course I know the answer. It's you. We always want, so if someone's got a problem with me, come and speak to me and no one else. It's, it's frustrating when it happens and I, I suggest to you that great organisations, great institutions, great businesses, great churches deal with issues and they don't let them fester. Been in those, those that have been in good cultures know that, that we confront issues head on and we address it and it allows us to move on, remove the roadblocks. It's a verse that says the most valuable thing any of us can do. Oh, sorry, I've slipped over. So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. You recognise that verse, the golden rule. Principle two, the well near you. I never tire of that story of the woman at the well and there's so many nuances to it, so many, so many lessons to be had. But here's my take out. That Jesus stands at that woman and speaks to her and it's more what I'm interested in is the way he spoke to her. That he spoke straight to her heart. He spoke directly to her, powerfully. But there was no yelling and screaming and anger he spoke gently and softly, and it's a great lesson for us to, to learn. I'm um, involved in a, a group, and some of my friends would know, called SALT, Sport and Life Training, and, and we go to uh, football clubs mainly, but other sporting clubs. We speak to the players, mainly about social issues that face, they face today, and certainly uh, football clubs do, drug issues, alcohol issues, uh, respect for women, uh, uh, mental health is a big one for us. And the first time I, I got to, to go to one of these sessions to see if I wanted to get involved, we're out at Greensboro. It was a Thursday night. It was a, a group of about 40, 50 kids coming off the training track. They were in the changing rooms, sitting on the ground. They are high as a kite. And their attention span of about a minute, and I went, oh... I'm glad I'm not presenting tonight. This is a tough ask. And as I sat down, uh, the presenter turned on a, a screen like this and up uh, come AFL highlights of courageous acts on the football field. And the kids were crazy for it. Just men, brave AFL players, taking hits and bumps and looking after their mates and doing these courageous acts. And they were so excited. And then he turned to them and said, you know, each week you do that on the football field. You look after your mates. You show courage on the field. And what I want to talk to you about tonight is what courage off the field looks like. And he had their attention. They were just still because they wanted to know what courage off the field looked like. And basically what he was saying to them is that when you have a friend who's about to get into a car with a drunken driver, you put your hand on your friend shoulder and say, mate, don't do it. When he's behaving strangely, he's out of character, you put your hand on your friend and you say, 
mate, what's wrong? Are you okay? You have the courage to do that. If you're talking um, in a non-acceptable way to a, maybe a, a girl, say, mate, pull your head in, stop. We have mates like that. I think, Steve, we, we all have blind spots. And we know people standing at the well, the woman Jesus found. We know that there are people in our lives that just have that blind spot, that they don't realise what they're doing. And it's best, do we have the courage to confront the issue with them, to help them see? It's so important that when someone says to us, or when we, we, we need to be pulled up, better to come from a friend than someone of higher authority. We listen to them because we know we're loved. Another verse says, if, you bother, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. Hmm. Principle three, be prepared if your name is on the ball. What's to this word, be prepared? Who's, uh, I'm sure many of you play competitive sport. And you know sometimes in a game that it's your turn. It's your turn to go, to do the thing that you don't really want to do, the tough thing. And you know, for some reason, everybody else knows in that game, that was your turn. And if you don't go, you have to wear it a bit. You have to have the courage to go when it's your turn. My memory of this was, as a 19-year-old, I'd moved to Sydney with my parents. We didn't know anyone. And I decided to play Australian rules football for North Sydney and uh, just to make some friends. And I'd kick the football in the street, but I never played competitive football, other sports. And I went down to the, the ground, and in those days, because of my height, I was instantly the rover. <laughs> we don't call them rovers anymore, we call them midfielders. And I learnt that there was an inside midfielder and an outside midfielder. And the inside midfielder was the guy that went in under the pack, he got the ball. He's moving people around, hits, bumps. He's doing the tough thing and it just had injury written all over it. <laughs> it was not appealing. Now, there's the outside midfielder that, if he's smart, he's running past when the guy handballs the ball out of the pack. He takes it, hopefully he's smiling when he takes that ball because the camera could be on him. <laughs> he bounces the ball, runs 10 metres, kicks long into the forward line, straight to the full forward. And hopefully the umpire is looking at him and he's getting the votes. And I figured instantly that I was an outside midfielder. That's the position I wanted to play. And so this was great for about six or seven weeks. I was loving my football. But one day in Western Sydney, a greasy, cold day, and the ball, there was a packet formed and there was the ball under the pack. And it just opened up a little bit. And I'm looking at all this. And there, like a neon sign on that board, said, Ian Morehouse, come get me. <laughs> My name was written on that board. And I did. I, I went. And I ran into that pack and it sort of opened up perfectly for me and I scooped that ball. And that was a moment of ecstasy because I had every line next week for bragging rights with my mates. It was like that. I thought of everything. It was, I was celebrating and I hadn't even got out of the pack. 
But unfortunately, what I didn't know was that on the opposition team, there was a player that actually seen my name on the ball as well. And he said, Ian Morehouse, come get me. He was looking at the same neon sign and he was watching to see if I was going in to get that ball. And he was going to greet me at the other end when I come out of the pack. And that night in the North Sydney Hospital with a broken collarbone, <laughs> I learnt that if your name is on the ball, if your name is on the conversation, that it's your turn to go, you need to be prepared. And maybe I might have come out of that pack a little bit lower to the ground, I might not have celebrated so early, I should have been better prepared. And I suffered because of it. Uh, we just slip over. If the most valuable thing any of us can do is find a way to say the things that can't be said. We need to be prepared. Otherwise, there's a good chance in a conversation that could go wrong, especially a difficult conversation. I've used today uh, a lot of material. I'm about to use some material from a, a, an author called Suzanne Scott, wrote a book called Fierce Conversations. And I have gone to this material so often in my life, uh, in my career, uh, when I'm about to face a conversation. And she points out some errors, yet, errors yet again of how not to have a conversation. And you might recognise some of these. So the first one is, the famous leading question, how do you think you're going in the business? How do you rate your performance? It's a disrespectful and dishonest question because you really are not interested in the answer. It's a leading to a difficult situation and you're just trying to help yourself, not help the person. Don't do it. Number two, you might recognise this one, the sandwich. Start with a compliment, slip in the real message, tidy up with another compliment. And I might have used that one myself in my earlier years. No one remembers the compliments, do they? Praise is essential, but only when deserved, not to cover up an issue. Number three, too many pillows. Sometimes we put so many pillows around the message that the message gets lost altogether because we're only trying to help ourselves. We don't want to hurt somebody, but in the end, we never get the message across. We think we do, but we haven't. There's a famous line from the TV detective, Peter Falk. Do you remember him? In The Murder by Death, he said, this can only mean one thing, and I have no idea what it means. <laughs> Number four, writing the script. This sits well with me. I'm the expert at writing the script. The night before, we're about to have the conversation and we have written the whole script. We know what they're going to say. We, you know, I've got a few heads nodding. We've been there before. And in the end, we've had the conversation before it's even started. And the downside of this is, of course, we don't never get people to the table to hear their point of view, that we miss the nuances or, or new thoughts we think we know it all, but we don't. And we need to avoid this. We need to keep an open mind about how we have the conversation. Number five, take no prisoners. Delivering the message with anger, being aggressive and direct. You ever been on the receiving one of those? I have as a young man many a time. And all I remember is 
I, I got angry. I, I really got angry about someone speaking to me that way. And some of you might say, can remember where it actually worked for them, that it changed their life. But let me tell you, there's a better way of doing it. Because all you remember, in most cases, is the anger that you had. It's bullying. Proverbs 15.1 says, A soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. Suzanne Scott has a quote. says, There is something within us that responds deeply to those who level with us, who don't suggest our compromises for us. We love that moment when someone looks into our hearts and speaks softly and truly to us, and it changes our life. It's a beautiful quote. So I'm going to share with you uh, how to have this conversation. And it should, the good news is it should only take 60 seconds. That's all you've got time to deliver. Anything more is surplus to the, to the actual issue. And I'm going to show you how to construct that conversation. And I'm going to use an example. I have a friend friend I dearly love, and the difference between him and me is that he is an adventurer, he is a risk-taker, and sometimes he puts himself in life-threatening situations and it's impulsive. And the young man in me that used to be there sort of thinks, well, I'd like to be that. But after a while, he would constantly do these things on holidays for some reason. He would take these amazing risks, and gradually over the years, it started to hurt out his family and his friends and we'd really get anxious that he was going to do something dumb again and he just couldn't seem to stop. And I, I, felt, I felt compelled that I needed to speak to my friend who I love and construct this conversation. But this is how I went about it. And this I suggest you, you might want to use in your life uh, when you're thinking about a conversation you need to have. Firstly, name the issue. You only have 60 seconds. In two sentences, name the core issue here. Right? And I know with, with, with conversations like this, there's lots of issues and lots of emotions are going on and it's, it's bigger than Ben Hur and you've really built it up. But if you sit down and just think in two sentences, what are the core issues? I know some of you are writing this down. I think we're going to make this available um, maybe on the website. The second is select a specific example that illustrates the behaviour or situation that you want to change. And if they don't know what the issue was or they're not unsure of what you're actually saying to them, they should know after the example. So examples have to be more recent, have to be precise, they have to be specific. Right. Nail it in a couple of examples. The next is describe my emotions around the issue. And we do this because emotions are intimate, right? It's personal. And if there's a little bit of tension going on at this stage, it disarms the situation because you're sharing something of yourself here. We're not just accusing them of something. Clarify why it's important. What's at stake here? For you, for the organisation, for the people around us, if it continues... So I mean, one or two things. And then identify my contribution to the problem. I might have contributed here, maybe just in a bit, uh, 
I might have, I could have said something earlier. I could have briefed them properly at the start and they've gone off on a tangent. I might have spoken to others before I spoke to them and I've made the situation worse. If you were part in it, they'll know. So state it. And if you hadn't no part in it, leave this part out. Indicate your wish to resolve it. This is important because when you say that, they know there's no firing squad outside waiting for them. They know that they're not going to be sacked. They know the friendship's not going to end. You generally want to resolve the issue. And then finally, invite the partner to respond. And your part in this then is to be silent and let them talk. And you, they know clearly now the issues, everything about the problem, and you've said that in, 30, in 60 seconds. So that work for you? So I'll put up the, the next slide, and I'm going to share you what I said to my friend in 60 seconds. And these, my fears, my feelings, all the things that I want to get out in this 60 seconds. Bob, I want to talk to you about your impulsive risk-taking and the impact it's having on all those around us, including me. Last week in Sydney, you climbed down the cliff face at the National Park by yourself, despite your family and friends asking you, begging you not to. You failed to meet us at the car park and no one knew if you were lost or injured. Over the years, you have taken similar risks with similar outcomes. When you do this, I feel angry and now sad. I could dismiss it, but our friendship is important and I lose my trust in you each time you do this you lose face with our friends when you're dismissed. Oh, that's just Bob. My part in this is that I should have spoken to you earlier. Be more upfront. Instead, I sat back and hoped that you would stop. Bob, let's resolve it. I don't want your risk taking to hurt your family, friends, me, or yourself. Talk to me about what's going on. Help me understand. Funny enough, I didn't get actually to deliver it. Someone else got in before me, so I was sort of pretty relieved. But I love this guy. I have actually had a number of conversations with him over the past, but we have a great friendship, and it was important to me to go there. How we enter the conversation is how we emerge from them. Plan the conversation. Spend the time. Others will see into our hearts when we confront issues honestly and courageously. If you have a difficult conversation or just an issue, I've found just having an issue, it's not even a conversation, think through these steps. They're wonderful and it places you so clearly, so well balanced in your thoughts and how you should approach this conversation. Use these steps so you have the words to the conversation.